This is Set Piece Many, the podcast that was on hiatus until Rory sent a WhatsApp message quoting a listener's tweet that suggested we awake from hibernation way too early in spring to produce what we have now come to realise is more of a trademark than we actually thought. An emergency pod. I'm Hugh Ferris. I've been interviewing Riyad Mahrez today. Joining me are Rory Smith, who's been flying from Madrid to Dublin, and Stephen Wyeth. He's been doing DIY. Andy Hinchcliffe is in Portugal, so no change there then. You will not be surprised. Hopefully in our absence, you've enjoyed Stephen being almost exclusively the preserve of the top, 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 or top, top, top billing on Match of the Day. I've written a book which, um, as you have downloaded this podcast, you are now all contractually obliged to buy. And Rory has become a father for the second time. Rory, how is Aurélie and how much of a French accent do we need to employ when we use her name? It's a French name with a Yorkshire accent, so she's named, she's known as Aurélie, rather than Aurélie. Aurélie for a teenage girl is going to be problematic when she gets to school, <laughs> we're all completely honest, which was a mistake we realised only after the child had been born and named. Uh, the, she's fine, she's really good, she's a little Kate took her to a, to a baby massage class uh, yesterday when I was in Madrid, and she was the, the second youngest baby there, but by some distance the largest, which I think stands her in good stead. You want to have a large physical presence as a as a toddler i presume it's good so no she's um she's really good she's very she's um she's very sweet how's ed coping with the the splits that now has to share your affections no to be fair so he's he's a really affectionate older brother he was a dick to us for like two <laughs> weeks but he's kind of got over it now um but no he's lo- he he loves it he comes in and comes in every morning earlier and earlier and <laughs> insists on seeing her and waking her up and poking her in the stomach four-year-old boy's not brilliant at kind of being gentle it doesn't come easy to him but um no he's been really really good and he yeah he seems very very taken with her well uh, that, is that, is, that is very good news and for all those just catching up Rory's had a daughter. Um, firstly, let's say uh, thank you to Buffalo Colin Boucher for allowing the news team to assemble. Uh, head to at Menu on Twitter for an explanation uh, should you need one on that. And also thank you to all of those who have responded to our hiatus, a one that has been spent by at least two of us catching up on sleep taken away from us by small children with some incredibly touching and kind messages, which are too nice for even our levels of self-indulgence uh, to read out. Just know that they are appreciated and they will serve as motivation for a more formal reassembling in the weeks to come. But uh, given this is an emergency pod and further ado is not why we are here, let's respond, shall we, to the news that on Thursday, the UK government froze the assets that Roman Abramovich has in the country. This, of course, includes Chelsea, a club that he cannot now sell. He has been described as a pro-Kremlin oligarch by a document published by the government and someone that has had a close relationship for decades with Vladimir Putin. Abramovich, it said, has also benefited financially from this association and has even, through a steel company he is said to control, provided materials for Russian tanks. Now, he's always denied any links to Putin or the Russian state, but he now will not be able to sell Chelsea or indeed make any money while that is put on hold. It will have a significant effect on the club, who have been granted a special licence to continue operating and playing, at least. But they cannot sell merchandise or tickets beyond the season tickets that have already been purchased. They cannot sign players or agree new contracts. All of which, Rory Smith, 
has involved every single department of the New York Times in uh, making several phone calls to you. How many um, business articles are you going to be writing in the course of the next 12 hours? So as I understand it, we are, we are doing something big on Abramovich that involves lots of departments. There's, there's business, there's international, there's investigations, there's sport, there's cooking. Everyone's, everyone's on board. Um, it's a fairly major thing. And I think the reason it's so major is because Abramovich is the face of oligarchy. And that that is why he bought Chelsea, because for a while it was valuable to him to be the face of oligarchy, because it, it, it bought him a profile and a presence that was precious and had a, had a use. And now, ever since the, 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 the Russian invasion of Ukraine, it has made him vulnerable, because I think to most people, rightly or wrongly, to most people, when they think of Russian oligarchs, it's not Igor Shuvalov and Alexei Miller and all of the others who've been sanctioned. It's not even necessarily Alisher Usmanov, who obviously has a football connection as well. Abramovich is the oligarch that people know. And it's why it made it so strange that for so long the government seemed to be reticent to put him on a sanctions list. Because I think to, a, to the general public, saying you were sanctioning oligarchs without sanctioning Abramovich would have looked very strange. And that's not necessarily right, but that that is what people assume, that that Abramovich is the ultimate oligarch. And that is because of the profile that, that owning Chelsea brought him. Is that partly down to having to tiptoe carefully around the fact that Chelsea as a football club might belong to a Russian oligarch, but is a community asset? And as a, a populist government was always going to be unlikely to do something that would have such a high profile ca- casualty as a Premier League club. And it, it, it does appear that the the announcement made earlier today and, and the way that things have been laid out at least gives Chelsea an opportunity to keep functioning in the short term and potentially be sold in the medium to long term without Abramovich benefiting from that, it, 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 it seems a reasonably sensible strategy, dare we give people credit who don't necessarily deserve any. I guess the fact that the government have clearly had to make special dispensation for Chelsea, you can't freeze Chelsea. They've, they've realised that it is too complex to, to effectively shut Chelsea down. They've given them this licence that enables them to keep on paying their staff, which obviously is really important because the vast majority of staff at Chelsea are not footballers. They are not Timo Werner and Kai Havertz and all the others who aren't German. They are <laughs> people who work in the marketing department and the accounts department and you know the ground staff and the, the academy coaches and things like that. They're normal people with normal jobs who don't deserve to suffer because of Putin's actions in Ukraine. The Not that the players particularly deserve to suffer, although I suppose that's a more complex issue. Um, I mean, I think that shows why Abramovich wanted Chelsea, because it makes it it's an entanglement into British like cultural life that that made it very difficult, clearly made it very difficult for the government to, to do anything. That appears to have been what they spent quite a lot of time talking about, the football club that he owned. Um, the fact quite what this means for Chelsea, as you say, in the short term, it looks like they can operate They that any money that they get, the TV money that they're scheduled to get various points through the season. That will go into a special account, which is operated, I think, I think it's held by the bank with government oversight. And they can use that to pay wages and to arrange travel for games up to a limit of £20,000 per game, which I suspect means that their, 
standard of hotel when they go abroad might be a little <laughs> bit lower than they used to. And they've got a limit um, for policing and things like that as well. Yeah. It's all, it's all but, capped for, for match look, day action and stuff. But, the, but I, would, do you know what I'm really concerned about from that point of view is that the Champions League quarterfinals take place during what are the Easter school holidays in England. Good. You, ca you can't get anywhere in Europe as a family of four for 20 grand <laughs> during the Easter holidays. So I'm not quite sure how you're going to get an entire football team moving around. I would guess that they have set those limits because that is what, what it costs. So they, it's a 20 grand limit for travel for away games. I'm guessing that's how much it costs to travel to away games. I, I don't think that if Chelsea had gone to them and said it costs 50 grand to do this every time, I don't think the government would have been like, well, you'll have to stay in a holiday inn, so it's only 20. That, that will be how much it, it will cost half a million quid to put on a Premier League game. That, that I would guess, is why those figures have been chosen. Um, so they will be able to continue as normal till the end of the season. They won't have to withdraw from the league or anything like that. And that's, that's good. Beyond that, I don't know how viable this kind of holding pattern is for Chelsea but because it, it, it influences their, their activities so much that I don't know if it's, it doesn't strike me as being, even though the government is saying they can, they can tweak and amend the license depending on the situation, it doesn't strike me as being a particularly sustainable situation. So, so Chelsea cannot sell any tickets on top of what they've already sold. So, so anybody, you don't get walk-ups these days really in Premier League football anyway, do you? But um, anything that they'd want to sell for um, matches upcoming that are outside of the, the season ticket allocations cannot be sold. Those people in the ground will be able to buy food and drink. Uh, that's still operating a match days. Um, so these, these are the little concessions that have been made, but it, it is a strange, as you say, Rory, a holding pattern. But is it, is it interesting that this happened just two days after the original deadline for bids, which of course did not really bring up, certainly not any, any um, bids that have been made public or we can have any more details on to suggest that there was a sale on its way. But I think the original deadline was extended so did that give the government a little bit more time to, to come up with this plan? Or was it simply it took this long to try and arrange a license and the terms of that license to be able to continue having Chelsea operate until the end of the season? And then we'll talk about perhaps what, what the government, government might do if they are to be the ones who are arbitrators, arbiters of, of the sale, because the sale can still happen. Yeah, it's an, so one of, the, one of the things that's really interesting, if that's the right word about this, is, is all the different ramifications. I, I think we, we, it's, it is speculation. I, I don't know the answer to this. I, I would guess that Abramovich was hoping he might be able to get a deal in place before sanctions hit. Now, whether that means that last Friday, when the initial indications of interest were meant to be submitted, whether they've not had anything serious enough before come through that means that his chances of actually selling the club have gone. I mean, Abramovich is, is a rich man. He's a, he's a lot less rich than he was a few weeks ago. Um, or quite a lot of his paper wealth has been wiped out effectively. Um, but he's not so rich that he can afford to just be like, well, it's two billion quid, who, who cares? Like, that's mm -hmm. not how the, that isn't how the rich operate. He will have wanted to sell. He definitely won't want to give it away for free. That isn't in his interests at all. Um, Although he did originally say, didn't he, uh, that uh, he would any profits that he would make, he would put into yeah. into a charitable but, foundation, which would then be given to the victims. The victims, not specific as to what country those victims came from, but the victims of the war. I mean, it's you know the the victims of the war in Ukraine could be anyone up to and including people who have seen their yachts seized. So uh, yeah, I mean, I think you take that with a pinch of salt. And also, it depends how you define profits, because he also said he'd wipe out the one point five billion pounds mm. in loans that the club owes him. Now. 
to a businessman, I suspect that that counts against the profit. So if he'd have got 1.5 billion, it would have been a 1.5 billion and one pound. Then the profit there is one pound. It's not that he yeah. paid 350 million or whatever it was for the club, and every, anything above and beyond that is profit. I don't, I don't think that's what Roman Abramovich yes, meant no, at current all. Current profit, and that's why he wants four billion. Or yeah, well, might actually yeah. want three billion ish. I, I don't, I don't. This is I've, I've had to um, shy away a little bit from saying this publicly on Twitter. It's not the right forum. I'm not sure that football journalism has covered itself in glory in this story because you can't apply the same standards and principles and practices that, that you use for transfer reporting to a major geopolitical crisis. So when, when Abramovich's spokesperson said he's brokering peace in Ukraine, that was for some reason presented as Roman Abramovich is, bro is brokering peace in Ukraine, despite there being no evidence of that. Likewise, when Abramovich said he'd got three serious expressions of interest, it was Abramovich has three serious ex expressions of interest, which is a very different story to Roman Abramovich says he's got three serious expressions of interest. And that, that delineation at this point is really important. Um, and I'm not sure that, that necessarily that each stage of the journey has been covered entirely accurately uh, over the last couple of weeks. But yeah, it, it, it's kind of moot now because he's he's clearly missed his deadline. The, mm. at this so Friday point, was the first deadline and then that was extended till Tuesday. Well, no, I think so it's two separate deadlines. One was for in, indications of interest. It was for people to get in touch. And then Tuesday next week was supposed to be the deadline for kind of initial offers. The the problem, as I think Tarek Panja, my, my excellent and esteemed colleague at The New York Times pointed out, is that it's not like if someone had come in on, I don't know, on like Friday and been like, actually, we'll pay you five billion quid that they'd have been like, well, you missed the deadline. <laughs> the, um, they, like it was, I think that that was a is a technique that Rain Group, who were running the sale for him, I think that was a technique they were using to smoke out interest and to, to impress upon potential buyers a sense of urgency. But as I say, it's kind of moot now, just, just that's gone. And as things stand, any potential sales they've been talking about have been frozen. And I think under the terms, as, as we've seen them so far, the sale process would now have to go through the government. Yeah. I also saw somebody who seems to have a, a decent grasp of this on social media saying that uh, because his assets have been frozen, he can't even, if he wanted to, write off the 1.5 billion that Chelsea owe him. So that, in terms of trying to proceed, proceed with a sale, that might be something that hangs over the process, that you can you can try and take a Roman Abramovich out of the equation in terms of selling Chelsea as an ongoing concern, but it's not so easy to make that 1.5 billion just disappear in terms of whether or not in the long term he would be owed it back. So that's the the sale issue and the, the, the three expressions of interest that we absolutely know that he definitely had, as you say, Rory, are now moot because there is no timeline for that process and no uh, mystery that needs to be unveiled in terms of who they are and where the money is coming from. But it may well resurface if we come to understand that the government are going to play a role in selling Chelsea because this isn't sorted out in any in any way before then. And it is the government, as I said earlier, who are arbiters of any potential sale. But before then, there are several considerations, not just from match going fans, but also from the players as well. Antonio Rudiger's out of contract, and, and we understand that, that Chelsea aren't allowed to renew contracts. They certainly aren't allowed to sign any uh, players, we think. So Antonio Rudiger, um, Christensen is out of contract. Um, he and Cesar Azpilicueta might both be going to Barcelona, so that might be kind of sorted. But the Antonio Rudiger contract has been a, a discussion point for a year, 18 months almost, and they're now going to be 
in a situation where they have no say because he will have to leave because they're not allowed to renew his contracts. And there might be myriad players who are in the loan system who have been loaned out by Chelsea to all these clubs, a, a much talked about subject on this podcast. And suddenly they're going to be in no man's land as well. Yeah, so I think the, the, to an extent that the Rudy de Christensen and Aspilicueta situations are quite clear that it's not ideal for Chelsea. And I'm sure the fans will be disappointed, but certainly seems like one of those Christensen had agreed a deal with Barcelona anyway. Um, Rudy de, I would be inclined to say if he hadn't signed a contract already, he probably wasn't going to sign one. Uh, Aspilicueta is a little bit different. I, I don't know whether he, he maybe is in the mood to return to Spain or something. It could be that there's a kind of familial or like a practical issue that's driving that one. But yeah, I guess he will um he will probably go as well the bigger the the bigger issue for me obviously it's problematic they can't sign, potentially can't sign people to replace them and i, I think we, we need to be clear on this so the, there is a deadline on the sanctions of may the 31st which can be extended at the government's will i i'm not a geopolitical expert but i would suggest that even if russia unilaterally removed its tanks and its artillery and its fighter jets from ukrainian soil right now I don't think the sanctions would be lifted straight away. I'm sure as as any as the terms of any sort of peace deal, the sanctions would be eased, but I'm not sure, given what what we're what we've seen and what Putin has done, I'm not sure that there would be any sense that Russia could just return as normal yeah. to the international fold. There was so, an interesting line in in the Department of Culture, Media and Sports statement about Chelsea, which I thought was was revealing in that regard, in that they, they said that proceeds from any sale, so they're talking about the idea of Chelsea still being able to be sold, mm. but proceeds from any sale would not go to the sanctioned individual whilst he is the subject of sanctions. So that that, that isn't, you know, that, that, that a hard and fast line hasn't been drawn that that is a, a a movable situation as you suggest it it could be extended but is it is this an attempt to apply some pressure that they hope there might be a response to well i guess what they might be what they might be thinking and again it's speculation is do you get line someone up to do a deal at what you feel is a fair market price now for chelsea that's nowhere near four billion or three billion or two billion it's a loss making enterprise it's reliant to a large extent. They've done, they've done a lot to do towards becoming self-sustainable Chelsea, but they are still a loss-making enterprise reliant on Abramovich's largesse. So you maybe do a deal for a billion-ish, billion, 1.5 maybe, and you put that in a special trust and say to Abramovich, right, once you're not subject of sanctions, you can have that money. And you effectively use that as leverage to get him to go and maybe ask Vladimir to stop killing innocent people. The, but even then, I think, I mean, and there is another there is another outcome, which is that if the sanctions are lifted and there's no sale gone through, that Abramovich returns to Chelsea. Hmm. I, I'm not sure how politically viable that is to have someone who, who has been the subject of sanctions owning a football club, I think would be, you'd like to think it would be beyond the pale, even for the Premier League and the, the Conservative government. And they, they are not two organisations who have ever previously identified where the pale is. Is this a what will be a really interesting longer term impact of of this in terms of implications for existing premier league owners or any future potential premier league owners because we we talked about this a little bit when the newcastle takeover was going through about how you can see the appeal of the soft power that comes from owning a premier league football club or a, or a big major sporting franchise in in any jurisdiction 
but that with that potentially comes scrutiny and negative publicity that you've worked quite hard to previously avoid. This is a very real demonstration of how quickly and uncontrollably that pendulum can swing. And it'll be really interesting to see how the Premier League and other major leagues and governments look to maybe try and take better control of that situation. Because the Premier League have found themselves in in a position now where they have previously been able to take a fairly clear controlling line on the league and the clubs that operate within their structure. And and that bubble has been burst a little bit by by the government making the move that it has, has made today because of how much that quite clearly impacts Chelsea immediately. Well, so I, I've said this on Twitter a couple of times and it's it's fallen on deaf ears, which is not desperately surprising. I think if I was the if I was if I was any a fan of anybody, I'd be slightly worried by this. I think there's ramifications for everyone. So to try and stave off the accusations of terrible bias. I think if you're owned by an American investment group, you have a problem because the reason those American investment groups are involved in football is to sell the club's offer to profit. That's what they want. That is their interest. And I'm, I don't have any great ideological opposition to that. And I know I probably should, and it makes me a bad socialist, but ultimately, I think the interest of fans and clubs can can don't always doesn't always work, but can dovetail with the interest of investment groups who want to make money out of sport. And that's that if the better you make your club, the the more they are worth. So Leeds, Andrea Radzani buys it um, for like thirty p, and he will end up spend selling to the forty nine ers ownership group for a few hundred million pounds. Andrea radrizzani has got a nice tidy profit, and he's done it by making the club better. Essentially, I mean, he's not the perfect owner, but he has taken Leeds back to the promised land, blah, blah, blah. Crystal Palace, owned by a consortium of American investors who went in low. They've solidified it. They've turned it into a, into a good, solid Premier League club. They've got an academy that's working. They've got, a, you know, they've got all these exciting young players. They will come to sell at, at some point Blitzer and Harris and John Texter, and they will sell for a profit. That's not a bad thing. Like, it's, it's terrible that there are billionaires. It's terrible that we're all subject to the, you know, the, the exigencies of capitalism. But... In the current circumstances, that's not too bad. The problem is that the market for people who are who might buy those clubs has suddenly got a lot smaller. We know that Chinese conglomerates won't do it anymore because Chinese state policy has changed. They want the money staying in the country. Uh, it's very hard to see any Saudi individual doing it because there's not really any such thing as a Saudi individual. Because they, they do everything through the beneficence of the palace and Mohammed bin Salman's got himself a club. Uh, through the PIF, it's not related to the state. Yes, just just um, to clarify, thank you. He's he's a different Mohammed bin Salman. The um, it's similar similar with with the United Arab, Arab Emirates, where it's very hard to see Sharjah or even Dubai going up against Abu Dhabi. It's possible that someone might decide they want to have a go, but it's it's unlikely. Qatar has a club for the time being. They keep getting knocked out of the Champions League, um, and now Russia. The, the oligarchs are not going to be your, but you're not going to sell the football club to an oligarch for quite some time, to be perfectly honest, because I think the government and the leads might decide that it's not really a great idea, which basically means that if you're an American investment group, whether you own Liverpool or Palace, your market is now basically like a stray European billionaire, Jim Ratcliffe or that Swiss guy or the guy who owns Telefonica, like they might, they might do you a deal or it's, an, it's another American investment group and they will not buy the trophy assets. That's not how they make money. They don't, they don't want to be the sucker. They don't want to be the people buying at the, 
at the, at the pinnacle. So it changes, fundamentally changes the whole economic model of football. And I don't think that's been grasped. But I'd be even more worried if I was owned by a team by someone whose interest is not in making money from football, whose interest is in marketing or soft power or sports washing, whatever you want to call it. Because what Abramovich has proved is that even if they have a plan to sell and get out, even if Abu Dhabi's view is that they will build up this brilliant business across the world and they will sell it to Silver Lake or Arctos or one of the big private equity firms or whoever it is, things change. That when you are subject to the kind of the waves and the vicissitudes of, of geopolitics, you are not in control of your destiny. It is possible that at some point Mohammed bin it's it's possible that Mohammed bin Salman will not be the supreme ruler of Saudi Arabia. At which point maybe whoever gets in ahead of him decides, I don't want any part of Newcastle United, and there is a fire sale there. Mm. It's possible that Qatar after the World Cup decides, you know what, we're done with football. We don't need once a year for our name to be dragged through the mud by the ineptitude of Paris Saint-Germain's midfield. We 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 want out of football. It's possible that Abu Dhabi. So, so, hang on a minute. So the geopolit the ge the geopolitical playbook is actually the Paris Saint-Germain midfield. It's, it's, it's Danilo Pereira's fault. <laughs> Danilo Pereira. <laughs> rests you know the whole balance of the western world rests on danilo pereira's slightly incompetent shoulders the why was he in the team anyway uh what? but equally equally it's abu dhabi who have been incredibly sensible whatever you think of their project they are incredibly sensible they've been really smart really long term they will have an exit strategy but what Abra but abramovich had an exit strat strategy his exit strategy was when i'm bored of this i will sell it for a huge amount of money and it would have worked if it wasn't for that pesky war because that, that, you know, if he'd sold two years ago, it would have been fine. He'd have made a load, load of money out of Chelsea when he had an offer from Todd Burley, the, the American billionaire. He'd have made a load of money. He'd have got away with it. And the war wouldn't have been an issue. You've just made him sound like the villain at the end of an episode of Scooby-Doo, by the no, way. By mistake. I, I mean, I did that on purpose, but it, he, he actually sounds like Fred from Scooby-Doo, uh, which is not <laughs> ideal because Fred is the hero of Scooby-Doo. The... Um, no, Velma is the hero of Scooby-Doo, that's right. No, so Abu Dhabi will have an exit strategy, but what this has proven is that things change, and when you're susceptible to two changes in geopolitics, your exit strategy might not apply. And even if, in whatever circumstances Abramovich gets out of Chelsea, whether he'd sold it through Rain Group, whether the government do it for him, whatever happens, he leaves Chelsea in a really difficult position. They, they will have to cut their cloth accordingly. The new owners, whoever they are, might not want to bankroll them as much as Abramovich has. And the worst case scenario is that the club goes into administration because they can't find a buyer and that, that all of their kind of, they, or not even not, not necessarily administration, but they're, they're held in this kind of work to rule holding pattern. And also they're all actually making out. losses. They're actually and they're making losses. Yeah. So, and, and, then, and being hit with a nine point deduction. And there comes a point where, where players will be like, well, hang on, I don't want to, I'm Kai Havertz, I don't want to spend my career at this club where everything is uncertain. Thomas Tuchel might leave. That all has to be factored into Abramovich's legacy at Chelsea as much as the titles and the Champions League. The way he's leaving, the price that Chelsea have paid for all of the stuff that he's brought them is this. Yeah, you talked about the players earlier and those that are out of contract and, and, and might be moving on and the uncertainty that that provides. But do you know, they might be the players at Chelsea and, and in both the men's and women's teams, by the way, who have got the at least a bit of clarity about what's happening with them. If you are under contract with Chelsea for the next two or three years, you have no idea at this moment in time what that period looks like. And, and even if a club wanted another club wanted to sign you, whether that transaction could 
take place. And I suppose there's all sorts of contractual situations that come into play. And if Chelsea can't afford to pay wages, what does that do to, to players' contracts? And, and will they end up losing these incredibly valuable assets for, for nothing or con- considerably less than, than they're actually worth? So you, you'd, you'd look at Antonio Rudiger and think, well, he might be in the best position of all. His contract ends at the end of this season and and he knows that he will be available to go and play for someone else under you know as, as things stand. And and it'll be interesting given the, the the new environment in which football may well as a result of this all be working as you mentioned, Rory, that Chelsea might prove to be some sort of test case. You have a club that might be say for example it is a billion or a billion and a half that it's that it's sold for underneath the government's auspices. You've got now a consortium of Americans, you've got any one of those three expressions of interest that we absolutely guarantee absolutely happened. You, you, you now be, might have owners that are operating in a, in a different tier because they bought the club for, a, for less money. They are therefore only having to cobble together a certain amount of money, which might attract people of less wealth, which might mean that there is less money to bankroll it in the future. And so you might be in a situation, again, Chelsea becoming something like a Crystal Palace, where they have a consortium that have bought them and they are seeking to turn them around, maybe make a profit, but their budget will be completely different because they don't have a Russian oligarch worth however many billion seeking to make up the shortfall. So Chelsea in this new era might be the perfect test case of a club that used to be working underneath this this banner of huge wealth but now have to operate in a completely different way because that era may well be over. Or at least it is the beginning of the end of that era because of what's happened to Abramovich. Yeah, you can make a case that Abramovich's arrival heralded the start of, what well, I, I need to think of a catchy name for it, like football's oligarch era. Mm. And his departure, I, I suspect, indicates the end of it. Because the, ultimately, for all that the... The TV money keeps rolling in and all that stuff and the sponsorships and blah, blah, blah. Most of that money gets wasted. As far as the ownership groups are concerned, most of that money gets wasted on like paying footballers. That's not profit. If you're a massive American, you know, private equity firm, the bit of the, you know, the 10, 15 million quid or whatever it is that you might be able to cream off from the TV deals that it doesn't have to be spent in the transfer market or on wages that's not really worth the trouble, to be perfectly honest. That's a very small profit by those companies' margins. Um, if you can't ultimately sell at a massive markup to some robber baron from somewhere, then then what's the point of being involved? So I, I do think that this is there is a part of this that impacts football more broadly than we have maybe realised. Yeah, it does feel as though there's a there's a strong chance that this will really impact the value of of other. Premier League clubs. You mentioned Rory as coming out of this sort of the era of the oligarchy, but is it also the end of an era of innocence and naivety on the side of your average football fan? Because with the exception of some, you know, hard-nosed sports news hacks who've been trying to tell us about this for years and years and years, most of that has been drowned out by the noise of fans who back their clubs and back their club owners. And, and, and I've heard that already today from well-meaning well-spoken Chelsea fans who are trying to disassociate the Roman Abramovich who has connections to the Kremlin with the Roman Abramovich who owns a Premier League football club and that myth that bubble whether anyone still believed it has now been completely burst and you do wonder whether that will 
dissuade others now from investing in the Premier League, whether that's as owners or sponsors or or just you know part you know in, investors in a part ownership, because there is going to be more questions asked now going forward about uh, just how ethical that money might might happen to be. But that even applies at like the broader level. So if you think about Gazprom, UEFA have, have suspended their sponsorship with Gazprom. UEFA, like every, every other competition organiser, like every league, like every club, has spent the last 20, 25 years in a desperate search for whatever money it can find. It, doesn't, it has not given a shit where that money comes from. You know, it, it would have happily signed a deal with like the, I don't know, the Mi- Minneapolis dog burning consortium. <laughs> Who, who burn as many and dogs as possible. Hello to all our friends in Minneapolis. Who and I'm we, not saying that they do that in Minneapolis, but maybe they do. Members. I don't know. I've been to Minneapolis. I didn't see any dogs being burned, but I can't rule out that it didn't happen. The, they like but, ice hockey and dog burning. But like they would, the UEFA would do a deal. The Premier League would do a deal with like their official dog burning partner if they paid them enough money. They they just don't care. They haven't cared. The problem the problem with ethics is it limits how much people will pay. The entire edifice of football is built on them borrowing from Jasper Ford, the author, on the idea that that growth is good. And it has ignored the fact that that endless growth is the philosophy of cancer. That that is the central problem. If you if you refuse to look, if you refuse to ask where the money's coming from, if you refuse to apply any kind of moral or ethical guidelines to to that money, if you are ownership neutral, as soon as you apply a limit, the amount of money available to you goes down. So the, the Super League, the it's the Champions League, it's all based on the idea that the amount of money that goes into football is exponential. This is the point at which it is no longer exponential. Because guess what? The rival to Gazprom might be, or the Minnesota Dog Burning Federation, <laughs> might, might be, who else makes gas? I don't know, EDF, the band. The um, the EDM, no like EDF the type of music <laughs> the type of music it might be EDF EDF will pay you a load of money to have their name on the Champions League branding but they won't pay you as much as Gazprom were because Gazprom were doing it for another reason so Gazprom got that prominence because they they were they were being used as a soft power tool a politicized weapon as it's often described Put- run by Putin's cronies for the greater entanglement of Russia in the west in the Western world or whatever to make us more reliant on Russian gas. EDF won't pay you the same amount. They will pay you market rate, but they won't pay you the same amount. And that means that the, the exponential growth of the money goes down, which means that not everyone can have what they want, which means that football isn't this amazing cash cow. It might only be a small kind of switch on the surface, but the ripples are enormous. And I think that is the, the point that we, are, we have reached with, that we reached today when, yeah, when the era of the oligarchy came to an end within it's a, football. It's, it's quite... Um quite an apocalyptic way of making a potentially positive point um so uh <laughs> we'll leave people with that uh, and also keep your correspondence coming to the email which is still there for your felicitations and your frustrations setpiecemenu at gmail.com is there for you please subscribe share rate and review we do still humbly ask you to keep just just a little bit of room available for us in your podcast schedule thank you to Stephen and to rory and to you all for listening we'll be back with another set piece menu for you to enjoy very soon indeed